Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Quick question. What do you think is the number one tourist attraction in New Orleans? Now, you, you probably think New Orleans, ah, that's got to be French Quarter, right? Or, or Mardi Gras. But actually, it's not. It's the World War II Museum. It's called the National World War II Museum. And you can literally spend days there. And I'm a bit of a history buff. Some of you know that. Uh, if you haven't picked up that already, you will in time. And, and, man, you could, like I said, spend days there. And there's this one section on Normandy. It's great. It's a whole room dedicated. And there's actually, like, a, like a, you know, the, the beaches of Normandy. There's a map, and it's three-dimensional, and videos galore go along with that. And one of the things that's very clear as you, as you go through the history of World War II and, and the Allies storming the beaches of Normandy was how critical that was. That when the Allies got a foothold in Nazi Europe, it was the beginning of the end. Every historian worth their salt, almost all of them will tell you, that was where World War II was secured. Now, Scott, why are you mentioning that here with this passage? Because I think that the passage that we're about to explore together is the beginning of the end. Scott, he hasn't even started his ministry yet. That comes next. And yet, it's the beginning of the end. Because this is what secures not only his pathway to the cross, but your eternal life. My life in him, your life in him. It was here in the wilderness, Matthew 4, where it all goes down. And so this morning, as we continue in the new series that we started last week, Portrait of Jesus, where if you were here last week, you may remember that we said that in these four gospel accounts, we, we get a full picture of who Jesus is. And, and I mentioned this last week, that one of the things that happens as a result is that we get to see more and more who we are. As Jesus is revealed, we're revealed. And how important is that when we come to temptation? Because, because if your life is anything like mine, there are days that, that happen when you're saying, man, where, where are the resources to fight these battles? Where's the victory that I need in my life right now over control, over anger, the things that Mark was praying for earlier? Where does that come from? And the answer is here. It comes from what was secured here in the wilderness and was completed on the cross. And the power through the resurrection. It's all here. 
And so if you're here this morning, you're saying, man, I would like to see more power in my life. I would like to see more victory in my life over some of the things that seem to just crush my soul. Let me tell you, have ears to hear what happens here in this passage with Jesus. And I hope you'll see by the end of it why it's so critical. Three things I want us to see this morning. Number one, I want us to see who is that tempts us. Really, really a face-to-face encounter here with Satan. Number two is this. It's how does temptation operate in our lives? And finally, how do we escape? Who does the tempting? How does it operate? How do we get out of it? So the first thing here, let's look at verse 1, who it is that tempts. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Prior to this passage, the very first before this is the baptism of Jesus. Jesus hears the Father say from heaven, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so no sooner is he commissioned for the work of the ministry, which happens next right after this temptation passage, than he's tempted here. It's almost like, like you can't go into, to actually, actually activate, we will, the commission until first you travel through the valley of the shadow of death of temptation. And, you know, when I think about this, when I was preparing this message, I was thinking, man, that's actually like a lot of our epic adventure stories, if you think about it. Like Lord of the Rings, for instance. I mentioned that a lot, right? But if you, a lot of these different stories, as soon as someone is commissioned for a task, what happens? They're tested, aren't they? There's a test that they must just experience and go through. And that's the picture that we see here with Jesus. Of course, this one being the ultimate one. Again, who is it tempting? And we're told right here in verse 1, it's Satan, the evil one, the, the slanderer, as the name literally means devil. One of the things that I think that we struggle with as modern people is this. On one hand, on one hand, it, we don't want to make too much of evil. We don't want to make too much of Satan. Uh, sometimes that can happen, even in our modern world. But more often than not, especially here in the modern West, is that we don't make enough of evil, in my opinion. And here's what I mean by that. Nicholas Del Banco was a, uh, actually, he was a professor at Columbia, not seminary, Columbia University in New York. And he wrote a very influential book in the mid-90s called The Death of Satan. And I picked it up a couple years after that. This is the late 90s. I remember reading and being fascinated. One of the things he says there is that if you look at surveys, approximately 85, 90% of people in the world, even in the secular West, still say that they believe in God. But if you look at the same surveys, what is the percentage of people that believe in Satan? The answer, or the number, I mean, it just drops precipitously. I mean, it's less than 50%. It's 30 to 40% range at most. And one of Del Banco's whole points in that book is to say, what do we do with that gap? Now, I would tell you this much, that if you can believe this morning that there is a personal God, it makes perfect sense that you could believe in a personal Satan. I mean, if there's a personal God, if there's a supernatural personal force, why could there not also be a diabolical force at the same time? It makes perfect sense. And yet, what do you do with that gap? And here's what Del Banco says. When you don't have the resources to, to, to really purposely name evil as a personal problem, you have issues. He says this at one point. So the work of the devil is everywhere, but no one knows where to find them. What do you do with the atrocities of the gas chambers of the Nazis? Chattel slavery and how human beings were treated as property. Or the headlines, even in today's world, uh, just the ritualistic abuse of children, right? And we could go on and on. You know the headlines. You know, even for some of you, you know how personal the story of evil can be. And if we don't have the resources to properly name what evil is and where it comes from, 
we will struggle to understand the power of temptation. There's a passage in 1 John, it's chapter 2, verse 16, and it says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but is from the world. John is saying here, look, where does temptation come from? And he says, the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. This is essentially, as we're going to see in just a second, these are the very three temptations that are on display here. But where does that come from? And the answer is it comes from a source other than God. If it's not God, who is it? It's Satan himself here. And so this brings me to this point. If there's nothing else I want you to hear in this first point, this is what I'm about to say next. I know this morning that most of you in here would say, God loves me and God has a purpose for my life. But I want you to know, God is not the only one who has a mission for your life. Satan himself has a mission for your life. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way, but you need to. What is, what is Satan's mission? It's right here on display in this passage, beginning verse 1, but especially going on after that. These temptations are a reflection of Satan's mission into the world. He's saying, God has this mission, but I have my mission here, and it is to distract you from God's mission. That's his mission. It is to keep you from experiencing the fullness of life, to, to keep you from experiencing the flourishing of life, you see. And so... What does Jesus do here? Now, this is so important. This is why I mentioned the baptism of Jesus right prior to this passage. This is why it is so important that we see what happened right prior to this. What does Jesus hear at his baptism? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Where does that come from? It is an amalgamation of two different passages, actually, from the Old Testament. This would have been his reading. This would have been his scripture. Psalm chapter 2 is a, is a messianic psalm regarding the royal son of God, the Father, and it said of him, he will be my son and he will reign. And in Isaiah chapter 42, it says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. There it says that he will be the suffering servant who will please me on account of his sacrifice for God's people. And so what does what Jesus hear? Jesus hears his identity. He hears his mission, that in his identity, he is a son who has been called to go into the world to be a savior of sinners from God's people. He hears his mission. And so Satan, it's like a red flag. As soon as the baptism happens, Satan's like, well, I've got to get to work. Why? Because he knows that everything's at stake here, that if, if Jesus succeeds in his mission, he has failed. And so he throws everything at Jesus after 40 days of fasting in his hunger and his thirst right there in the wilderness. And there's so much more to be said about that. We're going to do that in a second. But I want you to see here that, that Satan wants to destroy the design that God has for Jesus, and he wants to do the exact same thing for you. He, God has designed you for so much more than even you are aware of right now as you sit here in these seats. There's so much more for you. There's so much more potential for you because you are made in His image. But in the brokenness of our world, it tends to, in an opaque way, keep us from seeing fully the vision of God for your life. And Satan wants to say, what you do see, he wants to destroy that. He wants to destroy that in your individuality, in your singleness, in your marriage. No matter what your station of life is, he wants to destroy that. And here's the thing. More than anything else, he just all he has to do is he has to neutralize you. Listen to what N.T. Wright, one of my favorite theologians, as you all know, says in his commentary on this. The temptations we all face day by day and at critical moments of decision and vocation in our lives may be very different from those of Jesus. But they have exactly the same point. 
they're not simply trying to entice us into committing this or that sin. They're trying to distract us, to turn us aside from the path of servanthood to which our baptism has commissioned us. God has a costly but wonderfully glorious vocation for each one of us. The enemy will do everything possible to distract us and thwart God's purpose. If we have heard God's voice welcoming us as his children, wait for it, we will also hear the whispered suggestions of the enemy. You know, in some ways this is not a fair battle. Because, look, have you ever watched those uh, those shows on TV, like the HDTV network and Discovery Channel, like Flip This House, things like that? You, you know what always happens? Like they flip a house and, and they're going to you know tear down the old one, and it takes like it takes like a few hours to tear down the house to break up the walls to you know to get ready for the reno. But you know what always happens, right? They're always over budget, and it always takes them way longer than they just, oh six weeks, and it's twelve weeks later, and they spent fifty percent more than they were expecting to, right? It's sort of like that for, for Satan. All he has to do is wreck the house. He doesn't, he, he's not trying to build anything here. He does not care what you go after as long as it's not him. He's like, pick your poison. I don't care as long as it's not the Father. As long as it's not God, as long as he's not your everything, I don't care what you go after because if you're going after anything other than him, I'm satisfied. You see how much easier that mission is? He wants to wreck your life by neutralizing you. The only thing that he needs to do is neutralize your faith, and he wins, you see. He doesn't need an exorcism like the movie. He doesn't need flying knives, you know, to going after you, that sort of thing, right? He doesn't need that. He just needs to neutralize you. That's it. To give you something that's a higher affection, a greater delight in your life. What is that for you? All of us in here know what that's like. All of us in here know that there's something that in a moment of weakness, this is that thing that we delight in more so than God. That's what makes you human, the side of heaven, we might say. So what I want you to see next, very importantly here, is how that actual temptation operates. Just knowing that, that he's the tempter. I know that on paper we know that, but hopefully in the last few minutes you've heard me say why that's so important to know his voice, how that whispering voice, that alternate voice. But I want you to see how it operates. And before I, I give you these three temptations here, I want you maybe to ask this question if you haven't already, because I certainly was asking this question this week. And that is, why doesn't Jesus, after the very first temptation, why doesn't he say, out of here, Satan. Okay, I know what you're up to. Be gone. He says after the third one, but why doesn't he do that after the first one? Ever wonder that? Here's what I think the answer is. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, listen to what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. These three temptations that we're about to look at here are a representation of all temptation. These are sort of the three categories, if you will. And Jesus would put that on display that he knows that because every temptation he had for the next three and a half years reflected one of these three primary ones. So let's hear those together now. And because I love alliteration and because I think it's a great way to learn, here's the first one. Appetite. You're going to hear a lot of words with the letter A beginning there. Okay, so appetite. And here's the other thing. It's about avoiding something. There you go. 
And so each of these temptations is about avoiding, if appetite is the first temptation, it's about avoiding pain and suffering. Look at verses 2 and four, two through 4. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When I was in seminary, I, for about seven or eight Sundays in a row, I was just at a place spiritually in my life where I felt like the Lord was calling me to, to fast. I've not preached much here on fasting, but it is one of the spiritual disciplines. And so, for, again, about seven or eight weeks in a row, I was, I was fasting on Sundays. But do you know what I would do? On Saturday nights, I would eat like a pig. I mean, I would just, you know, it was like the buffet at CC's or something like that. I mean, for me, it was like, I'm just going... Why? Well, you know why. So I wouldn't feel hungry the next day because I wasn't going to be eating. Now, there are reasons today, especially today, where people fast, apart from spirituality. People fast for for dietary reasons, intermittent fasting. There are other reasons for fasting. But the whole point of a spiritual fast is to feel your hunger. Why? Because what's happening here is that, that, that Satan is saying, look, you don't have to feel hungry right now. As you, as you seek to accomplish, Jesus, what you said you're here to do, you need to know you do not have to feel hunger. I mean, look at all these stones in the hot, baking desert. Can you smell it, Jesus? Can you smell that bakery in action? Yeah. Hot baking bread. Just like that. If you are the Son of God, show us. Show me. You don't have to be hungry. Let me tell you one of the important things that we learn in fasting. Okay, Just as a discipline, but it's true every day whether we fast or not. The whole purpose of that discipline is to say there's something that's more fundamental to my existence than food. I mean, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I mean, it's right there at the very, very base of the, the pyramid, the foundation. It's like if you don't have food, if you're going hungry, and we know this as we look at famine and, and those who who are you know, without privilege, who, who are missing out on meals during the day. I mean, uh, you, we know how foundational that is to existence itself. But what Jesus says, no, there's something that's even more fundamental to my existence. Listen, this past year, we really have put on display here how important this is because of COVID. There are been, we have experienced more discomfort than perhaps ever in our lives. Now, I know that's not true for all of us in here. But for a lot of us in here, we've experienced more discomfort physically, emotionally, relationally, psychologically than ever before. And how, do I, and how do I know that we don't always deal with that well? Have you seen the statistics on addiction in the past year? Alcohol abuse? Um, other forms of abuse? Other addictions? It's way up. In case you're wondering, let me go ahead and tell you now. It's way up. Why? Because when we're faced with discomfort, what do we want? We want comfort. We don't want suffering. We don't like how suffering feels. We can't imagine that if there is a God in heaven, why it is that He would not want to take away our suffering right now. Why He wouldn't want to take away our discomfort. We can't imagine that He's a good God and then also would allow us to suffer the way that we have. You see. And Jesus says there's something that's more fundamental to life. Our, our tendency is to convert our wants into needs. You see how that, like to say that, well, I need this, you know, sexually, financially, something else. Like, I need this because if I don't have this, 
then who am I? And Jesus says, look, let me tell you who you are. Remember his baptism. He's the son. There's a mission here. That's going to come back into play here in a second, but I want you to hear that. There's a a verse elsewhere in in John chapter 4. Jesus says this. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Let me ask you this. What is your food this morning? Because in the midst of temptation, appetite. What is it that you hunger for? What is it that you're thirsty for more than anything else? There's a devotional I read this past week, and at one point it said this, the only way we can have a loving relationship with him is not to view any spiritual discipline as a holy bribe, like fasting, but as bread. God's gracious provision to nourish and strengthen our faith in his heart. Listen, he knows that you are going through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows, and he cares. And he says, my bread, I'm, I'm the bread of life, will be sufficient for you. And so the question, and you're going to see this with each of the temptations, by the way, it's the same. It's an issue of trust. Do I trust that God is who he claims to be? Do I trust that he's enough right now in the midst of my predicament, in the midst of a marriage that's going sideways, in the midst of singleness that, that's non-desired, perhaps, in the midst of a, of, a, of a vocation that's just circling the drain right now, whatever it is, disease in the body. But it is to say, God, you are enough for me that you will be my bread. I trust you alone. Now, we're going to come, to that, come back to that here in a second, but let me keep going here because I want you to see that the second one builds on the first, and it's approval. If the first is appetite, avoid pain, suffering. The second one is to avoid worthlessness. Listen to verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike our foot against a stone. Now, the evil one has just heard Jesus quote Scripture, for it is written, and it's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, about, about man shall not live by bread alone. That's where that comes from, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And so the Satan's like, well... <laughs> You can play that game. I can quote scripture right back at you. And let me tell you what one of the Psalms says, Jesus. One of the Psalms says, and it's a messianic Psalm, by the way, Jesus. And in this Psalm, he says that he's going to take care of his son. That his son will, will, will not be hurt. By the way, it's a misappropriation of that text. But that's a whole other story. And so Satan is like, look, if twice now the first temptation and the second one he says if you are the son of god i have a pastor friend he said that we live our lives by the conjunction of if the if conjunction is what rules our lives in other words prove it if you are somebody if you are worthy show it let me tell you there is a there's a there's a thing called holy achievement there's a there's an achievement i was talking with one of our people during our prayer time this morning at 9 a.m and we're talking about his work that he's doing and doing it with excellence. There's, a, there's an achievement that comes from a place of excellence. Uh, Biori talked about uh, work preceding uh, the temptation in the garden. Absolutely. There's, the, there's a great place for work and achievement. But there can be a sort of type of pursuit of achievement that's not based upon doing it with excellence. Working from an identity, identity that is secure for one that is insecure. And saying, I need to do this if I don't come through in the workplace. If I don't come through on, on, the, um, on the athletic field. If I don't come through in my home as a parent. 
mean, nothing will wreck you as a person in terms of security and parenting, by the way. But that's a whole other story. And so, but there's something in your life. There's something there that you're saying, man, if I have this, I'm going to feel secure. You know it. I know it. Just all you have to do is say, this is what it is for me. But for Jesus, it was prove your divinity. Prove that you are the son of God, that you are worth it. Put it on display. And what is the the test here? The test is to test the father. In other words, basically saying, do you trust him? And if Jesus follows through, if he listens to what the evil one says, he's going to test the father. And by doing so, what he's saying is, I'm not sure you are who you say you are. I'm not sure who I am, but I'm definitely not sure who you are. That's what temptation does. Temptation is not simply about us losing our sense of identity. It's about not being sure on what his identity is as well. And so here it is during this approval. And one of the things that I was thinking about, thinking of work, was that no matter what your, what your job is, where you make your money, you know, whether that's an engineer this morning, an artist, an educator, pastor, or those things that we do without money, parenting, whatever, let me tell you what we all do for a living. We're construction workers. We are constantly constructing identities for ourselves. I really do believe that. We're constantly constructing something that we think people will like, and if they saw the true us, they wouldn't like. And isn't it true that, that if you live your life by the if conjunction, it can be exhausting? You know? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The, um, all the different filters on Instagram. Karis uh, was showing me one of our, our, the filters, and it's actually it's a split screen. And it shows you who you actually are and the filter and what it does to you. I thought, yeah, what a, what a great, someone had an ingenious decision to show a split screen to, to actually expose what we do with our Instagram filters. It was brilliant. Like, we, we, we want one picture of ourselves, and we're so fearful of the actual picture of ourselves. All of our flaws, all of our issues, all of our problems. I'm not worthy unless I can create a filtered picture of myself. And yet Jesus' response is, it is written. It is written. Do not test the Lord your God. Why does he say that? Because he knows who he is. Which leads now to the last temptation here, and that is ambition, or the desire to avoid meaninglessness, as we're going to see. Look at verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, the first two, you know, he's doing a little jujitsu back and forth here with Jesus, quoting scripture back to Jesus after he's quoting scripture to the devil, and a little give and take here about what is the meaning of scripture. Well, he just goes for it all here. You know, he just goes naked on Jesus. <laughs> he's like, just worship me, would you? you know, kind of thing like that. And, but, but it's easy to say, now, why in the world would Jesus be, be tempted? Is that really a temptation? If Satan comes along and says, look, just fall down and worship me, let me tell you, it really is. And here's why. Jesus knows that he's headed, if God's mission, if he's to secure himself and to trust that mission, he knows where he's headed. He's headed to the cross. And remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. And what Satan is saying is, look, it doesn't have to be the way through the cross. There's, there's a different way for you to have power. And remember the word that's used here, it's the word glory. 
It's this idea of having gravitas in the world that I always like to talk about. To have weightiness in the world. Part of ambition, and there's such a thing as a holy ambition, but remember, sin is always an aberration of a good thing. And so, when you want to destroy ambition, make it about self-glory. And so, the opportunity that, that Jesus is given here is to say, look, make it about yourself. And it, it, you don't have to go through the way of the cross, the way of suffering here. There's a commentator, his name is Craig Blomberg, and he said this at one point. He said, we are tempted to gauge life by, by human comforts and consumerism, to misuse spiritual gifts and power for our own glory and benefit rather than serving others and to seize power by shortcuts. You do not have to live long in the church to see how that is abused. And it's not just the, what's out there. It's also how it's been abused, even by pastors and leaders such as myself. Right, and we we know the headlines. I will say this that in the in the in the past year, I, my heart has been crushed because um, someone that I looked up to a lot back in the day when I worked for him was found out in the organization, the global organization that I worked for. And you you probably know many of you know the story, but was found out to be a hypocrite. I was living a an extreme double life. Was preaching quote unquote the gospel to to skeptics of the faith globally, but at the same time was abusing women sexually. And then was choosing to cover it up with lies and leveraging power. And, you know, when Blumberg was saying here about the spiritual abuse or about using words to do so, uh, hearing this individual, my former boss, someone that I looked up to, leverage that against other people and saying, if you don't do this for me sexually, God won't be pleased. This stuff that crushed my heart the last few weeks. And it's one thing to read about others that I don't know who are crushing the souls of human beings in the church. But to know someone personally um, has has been traumatic for me all over again. And so that's why we need to have ears here. That's an extreme case uh, of, of, of a misuse of power. But it's an important one for us because the seed of that that was in him is also in us. And as soon as we think that we are entitled to have more than what we have, that's the beginning point of the temptation. That is the beginning point of destruction. Rabbi Pentius, who lived centuries ago, he said this, The world is like a book that can be read in either direction. There's the power of creation to make something from nothing, and there's the power of destruction to make nothing of something. This is what happens in our brokenness, is that we make nothing of something. People made in the image of God, including ourselves. So what do we do? Maybe it was appetite, maybe it was approval, maybe it was ambition. But you you probably have located yourself somewhere. What do we do? How do we escape? Here's the good news. It's where we conclude. It's the last A word, abide. The answer to temptation is abide. But before you can abide, Before I can abide, we must see how Jesus abided. This is where the story concludes. Remember this. Jesus was the living word. And and remember, Jesus, prior to the baptism, if you saw how the the book of Matthew begins, any of the Gospels, Jesus was constantly abiding. He was constantly marinating himself in the Scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament. And so he's out there in the wilderness, 
And what is he doing for 40 days? He's abiding with the Lord. And then the tempter comes. He'd been abiding with the Lord, and then the tempter comes. Now, because he's not just fully human, but he's fully God, he has the resources that in our corrupt natures we don't have. He had the true ability to truly say no consistently. Because of Genesis chapter 3, sin entering the garden, that misappropriation of the, God, the word of God, where he says, did not God say, you remember that story, Genesis and Adam and Eve, Jesus is faithful to the mission of God. Well, I want you to see something that captured my attention in this passage, and that's this. Why does, why does Jesus three times quote Deuteronomy? I mean, he could have gone to millions of places throughout the Old Testament to respond to the evil one. So why does he quote Scripture, number one, and then specifically, why does he quote Deuteronomy? Here's the answer. The answer is that, that Israel was in the wilderness when Deuteronomy was taking place. And it was there that Israel is being tested. And it's there that God speaks to Israel the very words that Jesus quotes back to the devil. What's the significance of that? Where again does the temptation start? The original one, Genesis chapter 3, in a garden. It begins in a garden because they are unfaithful, because Adam and Eve are unfaithful to the vision of God. They're kicked out of the garden, the place of true holiness. And where do they end up? Ultimately in the what? The wilderness. And where does Israel, on the other side of Exodus, where do they find themselves? They find themselves in the wilderness. And they, like Adam and Eve, are unfaithful to the vision of God. What happens here? Where is Jesus being tempted? In the wilderness. Where is God faithful? In the wilderness. And where does he finalize, complete his faithfulness, this side of the cross in the garden? Don't you see what's happening here? The power of the metaphor? Jesus is putting on display what we could not, what we were unfaithful to. He is the new Adam. He is the new Israel that is faithful where we were not. Adam, were he to be faithful, Israel, were they to be faithful with a secured, permanent life with God, but they could not. Jesus is faithful where they were not. Romans 5.19 puts it this way, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Don't you see? Jesus was faithful which leads now to us. Here's where we close. How is it we can be faithful? How is it that we can escape? Look, Jesus was motivated by a higher affection and desire than what the evil one could offer. I will tell you this much. My wife right now, she's serving upstairs. Kirsten, many of you know her, upstairs with the kids. I wish she was here right now to hear this. But, you know, in our our 20 years of marriage, um, you know, when, when Kirsten and I are communing with each other, when we feel like we are connected as soulmates, that we really are truly living into our vows. It's like we're reading each other's mail and we just enjoy being in the presence of each other. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter what the temptation is. It doesn't have freight with me. It simply doesn't have power. Now, if we're not doing well, if I'm in a place of feeling entitled, if I'm in an angry place, yeah, temptations have more weight in my life than temptations of things associated with marriage. But I'm here to tell you that, that it is in communing that breaks the back of temptation. How do we abide then? It is commune with the Lord. It is to delight. It is to replace an old affection, 
See, temptation only has its power because we think of it as the greater affection. But as soon as you have a better affection in your life, as soon as you see that God is the greater delight in your life, it destroys the very power that is behind temptation. So if you want to escape from an addiction, if you want to escape from that which is so tempting to you, whatever that might be, I only have one word to say, and that is abide. It is to abide. How do you do that? It is in His Word. I can't, I, we stress that here. I stress this so much, don't I? About the reading of the Word. I cannot tell you how important it is not only to, to read the Word on a rhythmic basis, on a daily basis in your life, but to inculcate the Word, to marinate in the Word. Listen to how the psalmist, in the longest psalm, Psalm 119 puts it. And by the way, all 150 verses say the exact same thing. It is profound. I have stored up your Word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Why have I stored up the Word? Not because I'm supposed to. Not because it's a, it's a magic talisman, but it's a buried treasure upon which we delight in. And we take from that treasure when we need that treasure. We take from it the coinage that we need when we're facing temptation of all sorts. I'll close with this. Um, I think that the words that you need here are something that N.T. said in that, in that quote earlier, and that is your baptism. Remember. Jesus was able to face temptation and have victory because of his baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. When you read the word, when you inculcate the word, when you marinate the word, what does it say to you? You are my daughter. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you hear that last part? Because of Jesus Christ, he says, I am well pleased with you. How is that possible? Because Jesus was first victorious. You are the victorious daughter, victorious son. Don't you see? It's your baptism. And he's exactly right. When you're tempted, remember your baptism. I'll close with this. Eleven years ago, I was in Israel with Kirsten. By the way, I I want to actually take us all on a trip to Israel if we can. So I hope you'll sign up. In the next few years, we're going to plan a trip here. Because it is a profound place to be in the world, to travel to, to be in the places where Jesus literally walked, to see all the scriptures come alive, is a profound place to be. But we were there, and we're in a place called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And and Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, was was one of the ancient kings of Israel. And when when the Assyrian armies were besieging Israel, or excuse me, Jerusalem, Hezekiah was trying to get water for his people. And so it's one of those marvels of engineering in the ancient world that they could do this. It is, engineers today will say it's, it's a marvel today, but that they did it thousands of years ago is profound. That they tunneled through hard rock under the surface to the spring. They were able to, to accurately tunnel to the proper place where the spring was outside the city so that they would have water there. Well, uh, as part of this tour, we were actually going through, it's a quarter mile long, and it's no more than four feet high at the highest point probably or so. And so I was at six foot four. I was hunched over a lot for a quarter of a mile. And it's filled with water, by the way. It's not for the claustrophobic, just so you know. And so, you know, there's water up to my knees. For some of you, that's up to your hips probably. And, and, uh, and so we're traveling through this tunnel. And the guys, there's about 10 or 12 of us. So we're about halfway through. And, the guy, and we had flashlights. And the guy said, hey, turn your flashlight off. And we did. And it was the most pitch black experience I've had in my life. Even in a cave, it's, it's a wider opening, but when you're in a space that's four or five feet, and, you know, maybe about half more width for me or so in the water, I mean, it's a pretty eerie experience that you can imagine. And it's, it's a little bit freaky, and then he says, don't turn your flashlight on, 
keep going. Just, just keep going. And I'm saying, are you kidding me? I'm six foot four. That flashlight is the only thing that kept me from hitting the top sometimes. Are you kidding me? And, uh, and no sooner do I, I'm thinking that, that I hear his voice in front of me. He says, just follow me. And so we did. Now, thanks be to God, eventually he said, turn on your flashlight here. But the point being is, he was demonstrating that all you need is to hear a voice. Let me tell you, in the midst of your temptation, all you need is the voice of God. He says, you are my son. You are my daughter. That's all you need. Remember your baptism, city church. Sons and daughters of the King of Heaven, remember your baptism. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Jesus was baptized, that he took on sin. That's what his baptism represented for us. And he remembered that he was the son in whom you were well pleased, that he was the Messiah who was prepared for the cross. And it was in the wilderness, in the desert, where we failed, Israel failed, you were victorious. And it was there that you secured the mission that would take you to the cross that gave us ultimately the victory over sin and death. Jesus, it is your victory. It is your celebration. And you have invited us in our baptisms to celebrate that victory with you. May we be sons and daughters living according to our names, living according to our true identities. Affirm this week as we face temptation. Affirm our true identity that you have something better for us than the whispers of the evil one. You have something better for us than appetite, approval, and ambition on his terms. You have true ambition, holy ambition. You have true approval, our identity. You have true appetite, the bread of life. Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you've secured us. So now may we, in our baptism, serve you by serving the world. May we honor you in our lives. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.